0: Hey y'all, this is Sherry Witt and you're listening to Unashamed. Unashamed is our weekly podcast where we discuss everyday topics from a biblical perspective as well as having special guests on to give their testimonies on how the Lord has worked in their lives. Our earnest prayer is that God will be lifted up and this podcast can be used to further his kingdom. Now, on with the show y'all. It's a story that started out as a life of destruction, but through Jesus Christ led to a life of redemption. Please listen to part one of Jessica's story this week on Unashamed.
1: I asked Jesus Christ into my heart very early in life before I ever understood what commitment was. I was raised in a broken home with a stepdad who I couldn't respect because I didn't really see him respect my mom. I grew up in violence with drugs and rock and roll and sex on TV and not really a sound support system. If I did something wrong, it was magnified by the way they felt rather than explained or taught to me. My real dad was in and out of my life. It wasn't a very consistent thing. It was actually very heartbreaking at times because I would ask him to come in to get us and then we would sit at the driveway and he not show up. But then there was times that he would come and get us very regular and take us places and do things with us. Consistency and commitment have never really been two very strong points in my upbringing. So when I say that I, I usually tell people that I'm new in my walk in Jesus Christ, but it's not because the, He hasn't been in my life since I was young. I was raised in church. My grandmother was an amazing Christian, and so was my great grandmother. And I say that I'm new in my walk because I'm new in my faith, I'm new in my commitment, I'm new in my education. We started going to church in 1991 when my grandfather passed away. We changed a lot of our life, but a lot of it stayed the same, too. There were still drugs, and there was still arguing, and no respect, and we never gave my stepdad the lead of the family because, well, we were still waiting for my dad to come back, my mom included. We argued and fought a lot. There was much more arguing and fighting than there ever was anything else. We were more rather uh, to be seen and not heard. um, Clean clean the house, do your chores, get good grades. But there was never any explanations or they never really sat us down and tried to educate us on how to do these things properly. So, I was a pretty mouthy teenager growing up, I lost my virginity at 15, I rebelled very hard wanting any kind of attention that I could get. I was the girl that would sit on a guy's lap when I was 10 years old and didn't even need to know him, I just wanted someone to love me. I was the girl that couldn't wait to stay all night at her aunt and uncle's because there was love. I was that girl who loved her grandmother's hugs because that was the best love I had ever felt. My grandmother Iris, um, she loved me so unconditionally that she gave me the greatest education I ever have had. And it was with one conversation. I would go to my grandmother and just beg her to tell me why I was so defective. Why I couldn't get it right. And she would, she would hug me and let me lay in her lap and rub my hair and tell me, oh sweet child, you're not defective, you're grieving. And we will get to that momentarily, but she educated me on my own, un- my own understanding. She, I guess she changed my way of thinking about how my life was going. And from that day forward, everything changed. Everything. During my teenage years, I was suicidal. I was depressed. I was overly emotional, very overwhelmed. I had a hormonal imbalance and had no idea how to control my emotions whatsoever. At times, I still don't. <laughs> um, my parents work 12-hour days, seven days a week at times. My brother and I, we tried, to, we tried our best to raise each other right, I guess is the best way I can put it. I would chase him around the house and spank him if he didn't do his <laughs> chores, and he's probably going to kill me for saying that. <laughs> but, I mean, we did a good job, but we didn't know what we were doing. We needed more guidance in our life. A lot of turmoil and a lot of stress. And one morning I woke up in the 8th grade and started getting ready for school. And I did my normal routine and I took my shower and went and got dressed. And I don't know if everybody in the world has a sock basket, but we sure did. And it ended up being tracked baggy on the couch. (laughs) So I would go and go through the socks and try to find mates, but. My stepdad, I don't know what it was about. We started arguing as we always did. And I, may, I remember him making a comment of telling me when I'm in the shower, not to just stand there, to get my shower done and get out. And mind you, my stepdad was a drill sergeant before he married my mother. He would time us. We had seven minute showers to get in and get out. He didn't know boundaries or personal space. He was raised in a home that was not right. And I'm not gonna tell his story. I'm not gonna protect him either. He was wrong. But we started arguing about something. And I guess his comment about the shower really didn't even hit me because he was always griping about showers but he started calling me a liar. And my brother comes in the room and he says, she might be a liar, but what gives you the right to watch her take a shower? My mom wakes up, cause she's third shifter at this time. And she wakes up and asks us what we're fighting about. And I don't quite understand what's going on. I didn't know. He says, mom, I need to show you something. And he went to the bathroom door and there had been a hole drilled in the frame. That way, when he turned the knob, you could see into the shower. This is a man that raised me since I was three years old. A man that I didn't trust my whole entire life. I cried on the way down the aisle for my mom to marry that man. He provided for us, he did a good job of providing for us. After that, I felt very violated. My mom kicked him out. He was gone for a week. He called all the time. I was, I think, 15 when that happened. I know it was in the eighth grade. Growing up, all my teachers at school knew what kind of life I was living. They all knew. When a child comes to you and just wants to hug you all day in school and just not be let go, they know that they're missing something out. They didn't step up. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they felt like it was wrong for them to tell on someone or, you know, say anything, but they didn't step up. And I say this because the next thing I'm about to say sometimes really keeps me stuck in the past. And that's, after so many phone calls, you you get wore down, and he finally wore us down, and he came home. It was a group decision, but it was because we didn't know anything else. We didn't. Twelve years of a lifestyle that, even though it's toxic, you don't know how else to get out sometimes. It's like having a wet blanket on top of you and your hands are tied. That's what it feels like. So he moved back in, took me shopping, took me and my brother shopping. And it was supposed to be okay after that, I guess. So just out of sight, out of mind for many years. But from that moment, I wasn't the same person no more probably the beginning of it all, I guess. Because it wasn't the actual act of violation that messed me up. It was waking and going to sleep every day in the same house with him. Not knowing what was going to come next. Or, you know, if I wore this outfit, was he going to be looking at me in a certain way? And that was the most traumatizing part about it so for the next couple of years I started to sleep around I would get a boyfriend and fall deeply madly in love and started out with an 18 year old and then it went to a 22 year old and then it went to a 21 year old and by the time I was 16 I had already slept with three or four people, and that's only a year in to losing my virginity. I was searching for any kind of attention that took the attention away from me, but yet I was putting myself right dab in the same attention that I was running from. I didn't understand. I didn't see it that way by no means. So by the time I was 17, I started dating a 17 year old and of course he and I ended up pregnant within the first six months of us being together. And within two weeks of us being pregnant, we were already moved out of our houses because our parents had put money down on a home and paid our bills and paid our rent and just paid our way and we played house my son was born in 1999 I was 17 years old I was a junior in high school and at that time in life before it all had started to melt is what we'll call it I wanted to be a lawyer I wanted to be a lawyer and not just any lawyer though I wanted to move to New York City and I wanted to become A prosecutor and I wanted to be one of the hardest prosecutors I wanted to be someone that when someone did something wrong they knew they were gonna hear my name and I wanted to make mr. Hickey very proud of that I had dreams and I had hopes and goals but I had no idea how to execute them so instead, I got pregnant and became a mom and fulfilled a different storyline. And I didn't really know how to understand or move from that, you know, to being wanting to be so independent to depending on everyone around you. And it made me so angry, Sherry. So angry that I had given up my hopes and dreams. For my misery and trauma. There's a song. And it's called Sing Me a Rainbow. It's by a band named Dr. Hook and the Messing Show. And I heard that song for the very first time. In 2008 maybe. Maybe 2009. But it changed everything. Because it has a line in it. And it says. I gave. I sold my mind and gave my dreams away. And that's what I did. I let the trauma take over. I sold my mind to my trauma and let it take over and then just gave my hopes and dreams away. So I was so angry at the younger Jessica that I couldn't get past her. I couldn't get over what she had done to me, you know. So from the age of 17 to 19, I was with my son's father, and he lived a horrible life. (laughs) I feel to this day very horrible for that man to have to put up with me for that long. I was miserable. I hated my body because I gained all the weight from the pregnancy. I hated my soul. I hated that I had walked away from God, but heavens, no way was I ever going to admit to that part of it, you know so I projected all my anger towards where we were and what we were onto him and it was just all his fault but in all reality he didn't sign up for this broken girl so we split we tried to make it work we were never on the same page of trying to make it work so by the time we split we hated each other and then I ended up getting pregnant again and I had an abortion at the age of 19 and I'd like to say that, that, that it didn't bother me but in all reality I took a, a person's life and then a couple of years later I got pregnant again and had another son. And all throughout this, I am building a woman that I never wanted to be. Throughout my childhood, I told myself that I wasn't going to be a drug addicted, bad mom who didn't raise her children to understand what it was like to be human. instead I became way worse than that I became a selfish drug addict who didn't take her kids safety and care into consideration and I started once Braden was a small baby I started dating a man
0: is this your second yeah okay
1: my second son so I've got two sons by this point I'm not stable I'm not keeping jobs I'm smoking pot Doing energy pills, trying to get rid of that horrible weight I gained. Um, Parker, he's done, seen so much by this point, it's, it's sad. And I start dating a man. And I move in with him. But again, commitment has never been something that I've ever been really good at. Or educated on or practiced so I cheated on him and broke his heart and destroyed his soul and that's the truth of it and we were very toxic to each other we would physically beat on each other and physically hurt each other and emotionally hurt each other and verbally say things to just break our break each other down And we did this for three years. We did this until the point of my family stepping in. And removing my boys away from me. And I'm still walking through life so blindly. So lost. Woe is me. And I in court voluntarily signed over when they asked me what I wanted to do. I signed over custody, not my rights, custody of my boys with all the intentions of getting my boys back within just maybe a year or two. Just let me go out and just, you know, sow my wild oats and just, I never was a teenager. I never was anything except for nothing is what I felt. So, that was the beginning of Jessica's social life becoming her everything. I would only work so I could go out and drink. I would only keep a job long enough so I could get high. During my relationship with the man, the toxic man, it got really bad. There was a couple of hospital visits. My hair got burnt off guns were involved, other people were involved, and this is, I'm just going to summarize it because I don't want to relive it too much. It was a very abusive relationship, back and forth, and once I finally left, it took the police putting him in handcuffs and me flying to Las Vegas in 2006, okay? not before though in 2004 getting pregnant on a one-night stand after my boys had already been taken away after all of my shame had come out publicly and I just felt like it was just even worse than what I started out with this pregnancy was more shameful than losing my sons because this means that I'm bringing another child into the world that I wasn't going to take care of. And that was more shameful in itself than it was anything else. So a year before I got pregnant, my best friend and her husband had come to me and asked me if they could have, if I could have a baby for them. And I told them if they could figure it out, I would do it. It had been a year and that thought had lost, been lost in so many drunk nights that there, was, I, I'd forgotten even about that conversation. And I'm about five days into knowing I'm pregnant. And the shame was building up so much and Satan was in my ears so hard, talking about how nobody was ever gonna understand. Everybody was just going to think even more of me. So I'm in my dad's bedroom in his apartment above the tattoo parlor on the square in Greensburg. And I have his handgun in my hand. And I sit down on his bedroom floor and I put it to my temple. And God says... I had an out for you a year ago and it was so loud that the message came in so clear that the next thing I did I stood up and I walked to the dresser and I put the gun back and I walked to the front door and it's December it's literally just a couple of days before Christmas and I walk downstairs and I step outside and I look over and there's my best friend walking across the street to go into a store and I follow her in and I don't tell her of the previous moment of course (laughs) I just tell her that I got her a Christmas present but she can't have it till birthday in July and I'll never forget the look on her face for all of my life and I said there's only one stipulation because of course I love attention I said I get to tell Brandon too so we walked across the street and I got to say the exact same words to him and I got to be somebody for the first time that wasn't a mess up that had a purpose and even though the people in my community and my family maybe and my friends not everybody understood then well how could she do that how could she have a pregnancy for nine months and just hand a baby over well let me tell you guys a little secret when it's God's will it's God's will and it will happen There's never been a day in my life since 2005 when that very special boy was born that I regret what I did. It wasn't out of not wanting him, it wasn't out of not needing him in my life, it was 100% God's will. I always make a joke that it was so much of God's will that when you check His DNA He'll still have his mommy and daddy's DNA, not mine. Because that was their baby before I ever conceived him. That was God's will. And I didn't have to worry about it. That's one thing I've never been ashamed of ever again. No matter how many questions I get, all throughout the pregnancy, people kept asking me, are you going to be able to do it? Are you going to be able to do it? And how do you explain to people who don't believe That it's not me. I'm not doing them a favor. They're doing me a favor by giving me a purpose to be alive again. My Jennifer doesn't know that part of the story. She's everything to me because she gave me a reason to live that day forward. And from that day forward, I was able to find a new reason to live every day. And that was because God had given me a purpose, and He'll have many more purposes for me. And I'm okay with that, no matter what my story is. I'm okay with being His will and His tool out here, no matter what they look at me like. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, And the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Amen. And because God uses us, I know Satan uses us too. So those who come against us aren't doing it from their free will. They're doing it from Satan's... They're Satan's tool. So those who thought bad of me or thought that I wasn't going to be able to fulfill this moment, I hope that they see that it was God's will and not mine. It wasn't me who could have failed. It was God who could prevail. So once Jenny and Brandon took adoption of Hagen. My grandmother was there. He was my first C-section, the little poop head. He made me a liar. I told, my, my due date was July 21st and I told them he's not staying in me a minute longer. I was still dating the toxic man, but I wasn't pregnant by him because I had cheated on him. So, I mean, the toxic man, he beat me through my pregnancy. He beat me, I mean, we, I, I have to rephrase that. We beat on each other. We were toxic to each other. He was never the only sole person at fault in this relationship. So, once Hagen was adopted out, I thought everything was going to be okay. I thought I could change this man, and I thought he could change me. It didn't happen. On January 25th of 2006, 911 was called because a man had broken into this my toxic boyfriend's garage, and he was mad at me because I hadn't called 911 before, because I knew the man, and I thought he was there just to see Troy, but in fact, he did break into the garage. So, this man wasn't at the residence when I called 911, but Troy was already drunk and screaming, because... I don't know if I said this, but he was a raging alcoholic. He was a really good guy who could garden and fish and educate you and have a good time and laugh when he was Troy. But when he drank alcohol, he was whitey, and he was not the same person no more. Well, he was whitey that particular day, and he got very angry at me and was screaming and yelling and saying derogatory things the dispatcher asked me in the beginning of the call if this was a domestic battery call and i said no few later few hours later after we had spoke to the police and everything went on with its way he was still angry with me over the situation and he was doing his verbal abuse and throwing things at me and he laughed because I said, it wouldn't be so funny if, I, if one of these times that you beat me up, I called the cops on you. And he laughed at me. And he threw the phone to me. And I'm not sure. I have walked out of that house multiple times. I was living out of trash bags at the time because I never knew when we were going to fight and I was going to leave or get kicked out. So, with all the times that my family had come and moved me out of there and I moved back in and just three years of back and forth all the time, he laughed at me one time, and something inside of me snapped, and all I could hear was the words, "I'm not a joke." And that's exactly how you see me." So I called 911, and when the dispatcher answered, I said, "It's a dis- dis- domestic." Thank you. Domestic dispute now. She said, I'm sorry, ma'am. And we went into the conversation. Larry Dance, God rest his soul, for whatever reason, he left us. He did. Him and five other police officers showed up because on multiple other occasions, other people who had seen the abuse had called police and they had been called there before. I had never called, but they had been called before. And he showed up with his buddies, and they helped me pack my stuff, and they handcuffed him. My aunt came and got me, and I moved out. And for the next couple of weeks, I sold everything I owned down to the car, the vacuum, even the video game system. I mean, everything. And bought a plane ticket, and flew to Las Vegas, and moved in with my aunt and uncle. Vegas. It lives up to its name. First thing I'm gonna say about Las Vegas is I'm only sitting in the seat telling you my story because God was there with me. Because of the prayers that my grandmothers have prayed, because of the prayers my parents have prayed, and because of the prayers that my friends have prayed. Because it sucked me in so fast, it was like walking out of our door with the tornado in my yard. I moved to Las Vegas. On February the 4th of 2006 I just finished a very beautiful week with my grandmother Iris she had just gotten her puppy that my mom had bred her chihuahuas to have his name was Gus and I helped her teach him how to fetch and he was playing with toys that were as big as he was <laughs> he was so tiny And that was probably one of the best weeks of my life, because I got to be with Grandma. I move in with my aunt, and right off the bat, I'm on this street. I live on this street called Fremont Street. And it's on the other side. When I say the other side, Las Vegas has one great big strip. When you drive in on it, it's got the Welcome to Las Vegas. It's a little boring at the sign but once you get down, it gets brighter and noisier and prettier and the casinos and the lights and the, just all the everything. It's overwhelming. And then you get to the stratosphere. It's a little ways down from the welcome sign. Once you get to the stratosphere, you're done with your tour. You want to turn around and you want to go back. Once you pass that, you can go, I mean, Fremont's not a bad place to go because it's got the, the block-long TV. It's really cool. It's like a thing that you look up at. And it's just one TV all the way down the whole, whole street. It's really cool. Oh. It's really neat. It's a nice little show. You go there, you look at their little kiosks, and you get the heck out of there, and you go back down to the other end. Because once you leave that TV and you start to go the other way, it gets worse and worse the first night that i was there the first full night that i laid my head down on a pillow i heard a I heard a very loud pop and my uncle said that was a gunshot Uh, oh wow we are literally in an apartment building in the middle of a city the only kind of gunshots we should be hearing is from police officers mind you i'm from decatur county indiana I left Decatur County, Indiana, and went straight into Fremont Street, Las Vegas. The next morning when I wake up, the news is on. When I'm in my town, Greensburg, Indiana, and the news is talking, it's usually talking about Indianapolis.
0: Right.
1: Not our town. Maybe we might be able to see our name on the map when we do the weather, right?
0: Right, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, I'm watching the news. And as soon as it starts talking about someone was shot and killed on da-da-da-da-da street and I hear it, I look over and he said, yeah, that's the shot we heard last night. I heard someone die the first night I was there. And it didn't even hit me then that I needed to go home. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this newscast and I'm all like, wait, it didn't happen in... A big city an hour away. It happened in the city that I'm living in this current moment right now. Not only that, it happened in the block that I'm living in. Not only that, it happened in the apartment building that I'm living in. Wait. Okay. You would think that a normal person would go, what are you doing? No. I said, let's go get me a job. So we went. We got me a job. I started working. Started meeting all kinds of walks of life. All kinds. All kinds. And I probably would have been doing okay if I would have just stayed with a small circle and stay quiet, but that's not Jessica's style. (laughs) So what's Jessica do? She meets people. She talks to anyone and everyone she can. She says hi to each person she sees on the street, because that's the way we were raised in Decatur County, where when we get in someone's way, we say, oh, sorry.
0: Yeah. And usually you don't know a stranger.
1: Right. If you don't know that
0: person, you know of that person because they're related to someone that you know. Exactly.
1: (laughs) So, you learn really quick that you just keep your head down, your eyes closed, and you don't... The only thing you worry about is what's going on in your area. Like, what's going on? Are you you about to be mugged? Are you about to be ran over? Um, I saw more drug addiction, more filth I don't know how to explain Vegas when the lights are on and it's nighttime and the real pretty dings are going on it's a gorgeous city most prettiest sight I've ever seen to this day and then the sun comes up and God shows you the sin in that city and it just makes you want to go inside and drink and go back to bed so that's what I did I drank I was grieving a relationship that I didn't really understand. I was traumatized and had PTSD and didn't know anything about it. Didn't know that I could have PTSD. I never fought in a war. Well, when you're waking up multiple apartments in an apartment complex because of the dreams that you're having, it's, 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 it's trauma. My aunt would have to wake me up and tell me where I was. When I woke up on my own, I couldn't open my eyes until I reminded myself that I wasn't in the same life I was in. When I would dream, the only dream I ever dreamed was he was chasing me. No matter where we went, no matter where I went, no matter where I ran, no matter where I hid, I'd hide in a closet in my dream and he just his head would pop up there and he would be there. And I couldn't get away from him. And I think that was myself saying that I was never gonna get away from him. So I just, I fell down into a depression and didn't know how to get out of it and didn't know how to make the nightmare stop, didn't know what to do. So I stayed up all night. I'd work at night and then as soon as I got off work, I would go and just drink and hit casino after casino. And I wasn't a gambler. You can go in and you can get drunk for free they literally just keep you boozed up in that city. So I was able to just walk in with a quarter, slide it into the slot machine and sit there. And this lady would be bringing me cocktails, cranberries and vodkas all night long. And by the time I walked out, I was slobbering drunk and barely remembering what city I was in. My actions started to catch up with me and my aunt started getting tired of my actions. So there was a falling out and I got kicked out. So I went to the first people I knew, and went down the block a couple of ways, and it was past the stratosphere. In a part of Vegas that nobody really lives in, they definitely don't thrive there. It's called Naked City. It's not because everybody's naked. It's because it's naked in Vegas. When you look at it, it don't look like Vegas at all. Because it doesn't have the shiny lights, and the big noises, and all the tourists. It has a bunch of minorities, which aren't minorities. (laughs) I was the minority where I lived. I was the only white girl in my apartment complex. Naive white girl plus wrong side of the tracks, bunch of gang members, doesn't equal a godly life. I lost my job, started hanging out with all these fascinating, quote-unquote, gangsters, self-proclaimed murderers, who come to find out wasn't so self-proclaimed, actually murdered someone. And I lived in the same apartment with about four of these guys. The fact that I came home alive is all God. So of course they made you know this gang life so fascinating. And of course on TV, of watching it here in Indiana, barely even ever seeing a black person, I was fascinated. I was hooked. I'd always had a fascination anyways. I was that statistic that loved the bad boys, loved the bad scene because I couldn't feel anything. I was so emotionally numb from the traumas that I just really couldn't feel anything except for fear. And that was probably my favorite thing because it's the only thing I ever felt growing up and being alive is fear. i was so used to it. So I became a part of their little... I'm not going to say I was a blood. I wasn't a blood. I became a part of their little posse. Throughout all this time, promiscuity is... I don't know if I said that word right, but... It it is a big part of my life. I I searched for so much in sex and other people... That I didn't know how to find in myself. And I didn't know what I was looking for. It's kind of hard to look for something if you don't know what you're looking for. Well, I lived with these people. I did marijuana and drank every day and then bills started we had, we had to pay for the apartment somehow so they started making this real great life look even better by talking about how much money a woman could make on the streets and how easy it is and if they were women they would do it all day long make thousands and thousands of dollars I just wanted somebody to be proud of me in some way weird shape i guess i wanted somebody to look at me and say yep that's our girl and she did it and she she took care of us and she was there and i wanted someone to be proud of me sherry growing up we were always failures we never did anything right we were never told about any of the good stuff we did i literally brought home in grade school a stack of papers i remember giving them to my mom and she's like wow jessica they're all a's you're doing so good and my stepdad says, "Well, where's your F's? Did you hide those in your desk?" And I started questioning myself, "Well, is that what he wants me to do? I mean, is that what I'm supposed to do? Like, well, if that's what he wants, that's what I'm gonna do so i didn't do I didn't do my homework. I'd literally hand in homework to the teacher, not done. I didn't care because nobody else did. It seemed like and when you raise someone or teach someone to not care, they're really not going to care so Let's fast back forward to 2006. I started to sell my body, and when you start selling your body, a lot of shame and a lot of grossness comes into it. So then I started smoking meth just to numb that. You know, you have to numb those gross feelings. So, and if you know nothing about drugs, meth is really good at numbing you, but also really good at uh, raising everything inside of you to a angry level and I thought I was so cool because I would walk out there all prettied up and people would want me people would pay me for my time I was just queen right living in this dirty nasty neighborhood where the moment you walk out you can go to the left and get crack or go to the right and get heroin And I was the queen. Because everybody on my block knew me. Everybody on my block knew who I was and what I was about. And this is so cliche. But back to the whole censoring your children. I had watched Pretty Woman when it came out. And it glorified prostitution. It romanticized the idea of being this damsel in distress and this wonderful rich man coming to save you. So I expected that to happen. And it did through God. I was out and I was walking and this car passed me. And this is after my mom had already called the Las Vegas Police Department and sent them to my apartment while I was doing drugs because she couldn't get a hold of me and all they did was tell me to call my mommy it just takes one voice to step up and if you're doing God's will he'll protect you through it all so if you see wrong and you know it's wrong say something because I'm telling you that's God's will sometimes you have to be his tools you have to be his hands on this earth And it wasn't the police. Blunt in hand, are you Jessica Williams? Yes, I am. You need to call your mommy. Four blood, four gang members, four very large black men standing behind me. And they said, you need to call your mommy. And you know what they did when they got back to that police department? They called my mommy and said, you need to get her home now. I wasn't going to tell Mommy what I was doing. I wasn't going to ask Mommy for a plane ticket home. I got myself in this bed, and I was going to get myself out of it. So I thought.
0: Thanks for listening to part one of Jessica's story. Check back with us next week as we continue part two. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at Romans116KJV or drop us an email at Romans116KJV at yahoo.com. See y'all next week. Thanks for listening this week to our podcast, Unashamed. We hope you enjoyed it. The song Unashamed is by Brian Free and Assurance from their album, Unashamed. You can find more information about Brian Free and Assurance, a wonderful Southern Gospel group, at their website, brianfreeandassurance.com. See you next week, y'all.